Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. You don't know how to respond to that, do you? (laughs) But we're just so thankful for the Holy Spirit who makes our four campuses in St. Charles and DeKalb and Streamwood, Bartlett and Blackberry Creek, one church. In fact, he makes us one church with Christ followers around the world who are celebrating uh, God's presence in their lives today, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. So let's pray together and invite the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Would you pray with me? Uh, Holy Spirit of God, we believe that you not only inspired this book that we're about to open, but you're the one who helps us understand it and apply it to our lives. And so we ask you, in Jesus' name, be our teacher. Amen. Uh, If you had been a chicken farmer back in the early 1900s, you might have chosen to participate in an experiment which, which in retrospect seems pretty crazy. Chicken farmers have always had a problem. Their their birds are troublesome. They like to peck each other. And once a chicken draws blood from another chicken, it it goes berserk. It goes crazy. It attacks until it destroys the uh, the other chicken. So if you're a chicken farmer, this is is troublesome because now your chickens are fighting each other and they're not laying eggs like they're supposed to. And so they decided to try this experiment. They put glasses on their chickens. Now, I'm not making this up. You could Google it sometime, not now. All right, but red-tinted glasses. Just try to imagine a bunch of chickens running around looking like Bono, all right? I'm not sure how they got the glasses to stay on the chickens, but, you know, the theory behind it was this. If if the chicken is wearing rose-colored glasses, then when it draws blood from another chicken, it can't see the blood, so it doesn't go, go crazy, doesn't go berserk, doesn't destroy the other chicken. Okay, it's an application, a literal application of the old adage, looking at life through rose-colored glasses. Now, unfortunately for the chicken farmers, it didn't work. All right, but, but the expression is still around today. Kind of a cute-looking guy there. We still use that expression, rose-colored glasses. We use it to describe a person who just doesn't look at reality correctly. They're overly optimistic. They're not willing to deal with problems that are, are right in front of them. Okay, today we, we launch a six-part series where we're going to be talking about the glasses we all wear. Okay, the glasses we all wear. The series is called Worldview. A worldview is a philosophy of life. It's how we look at things. Where do we get our worldview from? Where do we get these glasses? Well, you don't get them at your local Pearl Vision, okay? You don't get them off the rack of the cheapo readers at Walgreens. We we get our worldview in bits and pieces from a variety of sources, from our parents, uh, from our choice of news media, from the movies we watch, uh, coffee shop conversations with friends, our favorite musical artists, people we respect like teachers and, and, and bosses. And there's something you need to be aware of with respect to your worldview, and that is the fact that you rarely see it. You, you don't see, you're, you're, you're not really in touch with your worldview because it's, it's kind of like glasses. Now, if you wear glasses, you don't see your glasses unless you, you take them off and you look at them, you study them. But when you're wearing them, you see everything. You see all of life through your glasses. Worldviews are like that. 
mean, how often have you looked at, how, how often have you consciously evaluated your worldview? Probably never. And yet it's coloring everything you see. It's coloring everything you see. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. That's our, our passage for the day. Romans chapter 12. Over the next six weeks, we're going to look at half a dozen very popular worldviews, stories that our culture is telling us. And, and to some extent, every one of us has been impacted by these worldviews. They've, they've colored the way we look at life, sometimes in helpful ways, uh, oftentimes in harmful ways. So if your Bible is open to Romans 12, we're going to take a look at the first eight verses of this passage today. But I want to drop, I want to drop down to verse 2 to begin. Okay, the Apostle Paul, who writes this New Testament epistle, he's writing to a group of Christ followers in the capital city of the ruling empire, okay, in Rome. And so they live in this thriving metropolis, but Paul is concerned that the culture around them is shaping their lives a little too much. So look at the warning that he gives them in the opening line of verse 2. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. I love the way that another contemporary English version of Romans 12 translates verse 2. It says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. The worldviews that we'll be considering during this series have a tendency to squeeze us into their mold. And so we've got to resist this tendency. We're going to study what the Bible, what God's worldview has to say about each of these squeezers. And the, the first one that we're going to be considering today is individualism. Individualism. And to give you an idea of how popular individualism, individualism is as a worldview in our culture today, I want you to take a look at this video. You are the most talented, most interesting, and most extraordinary person in the universe. And you are capable of amazing things because you are the special. And so am I. And so is everyone. But I don't understand something. You've been alive all this time. Why didn't you come back to Pride Rock? Well, I just needed to get out on my own, live my own life, and I did, and it's great. We've really needed you at home. No one needs me. Now, we all have a great need for acceptance, but you must trust that your beliefs are unique, your own, even though others may think them odd or unpopular, even though the herd may go, that's bad. <laughs> Robert Frost said, two roads diverged in the wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. You want something, go get it. Period. You are your father's daughter. Stubbornness and pride. Mind what he says, but remember, you may hear a voice inside. And if the voice starts to whisper, to follow the father's star, 
Why not that voice inside is who you are. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. And after what you've gone through, if you haven't done that by now, it ain't gonna never happen. Remember, kid, there's heroes and there's legends. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. Follow your heart, kid. And you never go wrong. Do what's in your heart, son. You'll be fine. Pedro, just listen to your heart. Follow your heart, man. Follow your heart, and nothing is impossible. <laughs> Individualism. Individualism. One of the first times the word appeared in print was all the way back in 1835 in a book by a French, French diplomat by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. Yeah, my French is not that great, okay? But Tocqueville had just returned from a five-year tour of the United States. And he was really impressed with our system of democracy. He thought it, it was much better than democracy that was being fleshed out in France at the time. And he noted in his book that uh, democracy seems to flow from a spirit of individualism. And he, he cited the healthy components of individualism, freedom, equality, personal responsibility, a motivation to succeed and dream your dreams. But in the same book, Tocqueville said, but there's a dark side. There's a dark side to individualism. It's kind of dangerous, he said. Because when we're all looking out for number one, it pits citizen against citizen. It makes collective, collaborative efforts very difficult because we're all on our own individualistic ride. Okay? And so, so he warned against the downside of individualism that would destroy institutions like family and church and business and government and school and, and so on. Now, if Tocqueville had read Romans chapter 12, he'd realize that this downside to individualism has been around since the beginning of time. Paul writes about it all the way back in the first century. And Paul traced the potential negative impact of individualism in every one of our lives, showing how it can undermine three important relationships. Our relationship with God, our relationship with ourself, and our relationship with others. If you haven't taken the outline from your program yet, I encourage you to do so. Fill it in as we go along. Uh, first, our relationship with God. We've got to decide between self-rule and surrender. Self-rule versus surrender. Individualism promotes self-rule. Individualism promotes self-rule. I'm in charge of my own destiny. I'm following my dreams. I make up my own rules. I'm accountable to nobody but myself. Now, if you follow our church's daily Bible reading schedule, okay, we came across just this past week in our, our reading a dude who is a role model of individualism, this sort of self-rule we're talking about here. His name's Adonijah. Adonijah. And by the way, I hope you're all following some sort of a daily Bible reading plan. If you don't have one, try Bible Savvy. Okay, Bible Savvy is the schedule that we provide, and you could pick up a Bible Savvy journal at any one of our bookshops. The guys in my men's group, 
my men's community group, we use the Bible Savvy Journal and we follow along in the reading each day and then we get together once a week on a Wednesday morning at a local coffee shop to talk about our insights and our applications. And so this past week, we were talking about 1 Kings because our, our schedule has got us reading the first few chapters of 1 Kings. And over the, the first chapter is the heading, Adonijah sets himself up as king. So let me give you a little backstory here. Adonijah was the oldest son, the oldest surviving son of King David. And King David was about to die. So Adonijah just assumed that he would be next on the throne. He would be taking the throne from his dad. And so he hired, he hired 50 guys to run in front of his chariot announcing the news. Adonijah is king. Adonijah is king. And then he threw this ginormous party to celebrate his ascension to the throne. Only trouble was David wasn't dead yet. And David had promised the throne to another son, his son Solomon. And so when he heard what Adonijah was up to, David immediately put Solomon on his throne, his literal throne, and he threw an even bigger party that the whole country celebrated. And Adonijah looked really foolish, looked really stupid for prematurely proclaiming himself as king. Now, when you read that this past week, what personal application did you come across, come away with? One of the guys in my group, he said, man, I see myself in Adonijah. You know, my, my tendency is to come up with big dreams, big plans for my life, and I you know, put them into play only to find out that they're my plans, not God's plans. And then I feel so stupid when I discover that. And another guy chimed in and he said, oh, man, that happened to me back in college. I wasn't a Christ follower yet. So God was not directing my life, and I chose as a major, you know, a field of study that I thought would get me a good job making lots of money, and he said, I got the job that I dreamed about, and I made lots of money, and I was miserable. I was miserable. And then one day, I surrendered my life to Christ, and God began to direct my life, and one of the first things he changed is he moved me into a new location, and I've loved my job ever since. See, both these guys are, are illustrating this contrast between self-rule and surrender. Self-rule is the worldview of individualism. Follow your dreams. Pursue your destiny. Surrender is something else entirely. Surrender is giving rule of our lives to King Jesus. Let me read it to you in the opening verses of Romans 12. Follow along if you've got your Bible open. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is surrender. Offer your body at bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Paul challenges us in verse 1 to surrender our lives to God, or to use Paul's exact words here, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, why would you want to do that? Uh, because it's your duty, your religious duty? Or because God's going to zap you if you don't surrender your life to him? 
No, Paul tells us why we should surrender our lives to God in the opening line of verse 1. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, surrender your life to him. In the original Greek text of that verse, the word mercy is in the plural. Mercies. As if Paul wants to say, in view of how super abundantly merciful God has been to you. I mean, he's given you mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Surrender your life to him. Paul's reminding us here of a point that he's been driving home for the first 11 chapters of Romans. We're jumping right into chapter 12, but you've got to know what he says in the first 11 chapters to get chapter 12. So let me recap it for you. In the opening chapters of Romans, Paul paints a pretty humbling picture of what a mess we make of our lives if left to ourselves. We go our own way, we do our own thing, and the result is a life that is marred by anger and selfishness, dishonesty, lust, arrogance, ingratitude, you name it. And and worst of all, Paul says, all of these sins separate us from a holy God. Romans 3 verse 23 sums it up in one line, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's bad news because disconnecting from God has dire consequences. God is the source of life, so disconnecting from God leads to eternal death. Romans 6 verse 23 states that rather bluntly, the wages of sin is death. So in the opening chapters of this epistle of Romans, Paul tells us we all sin. Sin disconnects us from God, the source of life. And so we're all headed for eternal death. What what, what he's describing in these opening chapters is the path of self-rule. This is where individualism, in terms of our relationship with God, this is where it leads. Now fortunately, the story in Romans doesn't end there. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us that God wants to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. And so he sent us Jesus to pay our penalty of death. Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ took the death that we deserve to die. God has been so merciful to us. God has been so merciful to us. Now do you see why Paul, Paul says in the opening line of today's passage, Romans 12, verse 1, in view of God's mercy, surrender your life to him. You know, the person who surrenders to Christ receives forgiveness and a brand new life. Now friends, as we live out this brand new life, we will continue to face choices that pit self-rule versus surrender. I mean, every day it's going to be a question of who's in charge of my life today. Is it going to be me or is it going to be God? Whose dreams am I going to follow? My dreams are God's dreams. Who's going to determine my standard of right and wrong? Who's going to have the final say about sex and money and friends and priorities in my daily schedule? Is it going to be me or is it going to be God? Is it going to be self-rule or is it going to be surrender. Now, self-rule, frankly, is so much easier because we all know instinctively what we want to do. 
Surrender is much harder because we've got to find out what God wants us to do. So how do we do that? How do we figure out what God wants for us? Go back to Romans 12, verse 2. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, listen, by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So if we want to know what God wants for us, if we want to know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, Paul says we've got to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, we've got to reprogram our thinking. How do we do that? Well, we enter new data. We get a different software system. We, we, fill, our, listen, we fill our minds with God's word. We saturate our minds with God's word. You know, this is why we, uh, we push the Bible at Christ Community Church unabashedly. We tell you, hey, pick up a daily Bible reading schedule. Get that Bible-savvy schedule. Read the Bible every day. Get in a community group where, where every week you're going to discuss the Bible and apply it to your life with a group of friends. Don't miss a weekend around here because every weekend service is going to be packed with, with Bible. So, so what about you? How big a role does the Bible play in your daily life? Because, friends, this is the prime indicator of whether you're operating by self-rule or surrender. You, you could say you love God, you could say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but if you're neglecting the Bible, then you're left to self-rule. If you're saturating your mind with God's world, word, then you're walking in surrender. Number two. Okay, let's talk about our relationship with ourself. We've got to decide between pride and humility. So the worldview of individualism promotes pride, which we sometimes refer to more euphemistically, less harshly as positive self-esteem. Positive self-esteem. I'm wonderful. You know, everything I do is amazing. Let's celebrate my achievements together. Let's throw a party for me. Uh, those are the glasses that individualism encourages us to wear. I was looking for a movie to go to the other night, and so I went to my favorite movie review site. Uh, if you've never found Plugged In, it's a, it's a great website. It's a Christian review of the, uh, the current movies. So I was reading the movie reviews of the ones that are showing at my local theater, and I came across one called I Feel Pretty. I did not go to it, <clears throat> but it did give me a sermon illustration. Right. So here's the story in a nutshell. Okay, it's about a woman named Renee whose life is very, well, it's very average. She's got an average job. She lives in an average apartment. She's got average friends, and uh, she feels like her appearance is very average. I mean, every time she looks in, well, she doesn't like to look in the mirror because she hates what she sees. It's so, it's so average. Well, one day she's working out at the gym, she's in a spinning class, and she falls off her exercise bike, and she hits her head, knocks herself out, and when, when she finally comes to, she has a whole different view of herself. She sees herself completely differently. When she looks in the mirror, she sees this gorgeous woman, and it changes everything about her. This positive self-esteem changes everything. Now she gets the perfect guy, and she has cool friends, and she's confident at work. 
Now, now, in fairness to the, to the movie, and spoiler alert here, okay, for those of you sappy enough to go to a movie like this. <clears throat> you know, the movie does point out that Renee discovers that beauty is just skin deep and it's not a good basis for positive self-esteem. But what is a good basis for positive self-esteem? You know, is it your musical abilities or your leadership talents? Is it how great your kids have turned out? Is it certain char- characteristics of your personality? You're friendly, you're outgoing. What do you base your self-esteem on? Because Paul warns us in the next verse we're about to read, be careful of thinking too highly of yourself. Look at verse 3. We dropped, uh, dropped off at verse 2. Pick it up at verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Uh, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Tim Keller. I read everything Tim Keller writes. Uh, best-selling, New York Times best-selling author. One of my favorite volumes of his is a, is a book called uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Forget, in, uh, in this book, Keller documents the fact that the self-esteem movement that was so popular for years has proven to be a huge failure. I mean, experts tried to convince us that the reason people don't succeed, the the reason people misbehave, the reason people get addicted to stuff, the reason people hurt other people is because they have a low self-esteem. You ever heard that? Yeah. So we've been told that we need to develop a high self-esteem. We we need to focus on, on how wonderful we are, how great our achievements are, how significant the things we want in life are. Well, research now shows that people with too high a self-esteem are actually more dangerous to themselves and others than people with a low self-esteem. That's right. You, you just go to the local jail, according to the research, and you'll discover it's filled with people who think very highly of themselves. So let's talk for a few minutes here about some of the downsides of an elevated self-esteem, which is what individualism encourages. Let me suggest just a few dangers associated with personal pride. And this is not the complete list. This is just to prime the pump, get you thinking. First, you know, often the exaggerated stuff we tell ourselves about how wonderful we are, it just isn't true. You may not be the greatest wife in the world or the greatest supervisor or the greatest golfer or the greatest whatever, even though you think you are. You may not have the best ideas in the room or, or the, the best sense of humor or the best kids, even though you've convinced yourself, yeah, that's me. In fact, there may be some areas in your life you need to work on, but you see, an elevated self-esteem will blind you to the truth about where you need to improve. Here's a second danger. Pride puts us on a performance treadmill where we never experience fulfillment, just exhaustion. Performance treadmill. Uh, Several years ago, Vogue magazine ran an interview with uh, famous pop icon Madonna. This is what Madonna had to say. She said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. 
I push past one spell of it and I discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. So my struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. Wow. You know, our egos are insatiable. They're a black hole. Doesn't matter how much stuff we throw into that black hole, the cupboard is always bare. The performance treadmill. Third danger of pride. It's, it's hard on relationships. You know, the more amazing we, we convince ourselves we are, the more condescending we are toward others, the more disinterested we are in them because we've got us. You know, pride always repels, friends, never attracts, always repels. Well, if the worldview of individualism promotes pride, what does the worldview of God's word promote? What does it promote? Call it out. That was weak. So I'm hoping it was better at the other campuses. If the world promotes pride, what does God's worldview promote? Humility. Good. And I like the way that Tim Keller defines humility in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. In in other words, humble people don't walk around saying, I'm a nobody. You know, my my abilities, they really aren't that great. I don't have anything to contribute. Oh, I've failed in so many ways. No, that that kind of talk is still me-centered. But truly humble people aren't preoccupied with themselves. They think of themselves less. They talk about themselves less. And and when they do look in the mirror, what do they see? Well, look again at the closing line of Romans 12, verse 3. After Paul says, don't think too highly of yourself, he tells us to look at ourselves in accordance with the faith, in accordance with the faith that God has has distributed to each of you. So healthy self-esteem is faith-based. What does Paul mean by that? Well, it means we learn to see ourselves as God sees us. Now, on the one hand, that means that we see all our flaws and our failures and our shortcomings because that's what God sees. We're not denying them. We're not trying to cover them up. God sees the worst about us. But on the other hand, it means we see ourselves as dearly loved by God who loves us so much he sent his son, his one and only son, to take the hit, to take the penalty for our sin, to take death and offer us in exchange forgiveness and new life. See, pride, the the worldview of individualism, It suggests that we keep our flaws, our failures to ourselves, and we get our back up when somebody points them out to us, especially if it's a spouse or a friend. We've got to hide our shortcomings. Where when you see yourself as God sees you, you say, well, wait a second, God knows the worst about me, and he loves me anyway. Pride 
says that your performance is based on what you do. You, if you want to be a somebody, there got to be some accomplishments. And so you're always pushing and straining and you're never sure you measure up. Where, where God's worldview is, I'm a somebody because he loves me. I'm a somebody because he gave his son to save me. You see the difference? So when your, your, your self-esteem is based on on faith in what God sees in you, both your shortcomings and his great love for you. There's a security there you, you, won't, find, you won't find in a healthy self-esteem as taught by the world. So your girlfriend can break up with you and you're still feeling, okay, God loves me. And you could lose your job and you could not close the deal you wanted to close and you could fail the math test, but, but God loves me. He sees the worst about me and loves me anyway. You get it? Third, our relationship with others. Our relationship with others. We've got to choose between independence and commitment. Independence and commitment. We're going to read the rest of today's passage, picking it up at verse 4. Paul says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. Now listen. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it uh, diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Uh, Alexandra Gill uh, just launched a new business up in her hometown of Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, the idea for her new business uh, comes from her own personal experience. About a dozen years ago, Alexandra uh, threw a wedding, big wedding for herself. Now, there's nothing unusual about that, except in this case, there was no groom. She married herself. She married herself, and she discovered she was tired of waiting around for some guy to show up, and she discovered there are a lot of ladies out there that feel the same way, and so she launched this business called Marry Yourself Vancouver, and she's got plenty of clients. Now, I'm not sure where a wedding like that leads in terms of a marriage. We're all uh, looking at statistics these days, the decline of marriage, it's a bit unsettling. In 1960, 66% of 20-somethings were married, two-thirds of 20-somethings. In 2004, the number had dropped to 48%. Three years ago, last time we have a, a figure, 2015, it had dropped to 36%. So the number keeps dropping dramatically. Now, I'm not about to make a pitch for getting married because the Bible even teaches there are good reasons to stay single. And the Bible values singleness as much as it does marriage. However, we're all smart enough to realize that the drop in the marriage rate is probably not all due to good reasons. I mean, some of it is probably because of a tendency in our culture to avoid commitment. People prize their independence. And even those who choose to live with a partner these days prefer not to be tied down by the marriage vow of till death do us part, so they just move in together. No commitment. No commitment. You know, the worldview of, of individualism promotes independence. 
And we see it not only in the dropping rate of marriage commitments. Friends, we see it in every area of life. You know, a couple makes a baby, but then they decide it's not a good time to be pregnant. You know, he doesn't want a child or another child in the home. And she doesn't want to have to give up her good job or drop out of school, and so they abort the baby. See, they're protecting their independence rather than being committed to that new child in her womb. You know, or, or we, we see it, we see it in the work world, don't we? You're, you're working for a great company and they're paying you a good salary, generous salary. You've got wonderful coworkers. They give you lots of responsibility and recognition. I mean, it's a great job. But then a company in San Diego comes looking for somebody just like you, and they offer you a lot more money. And so you say goodbye. You say goodbye to your great company and your wonderful coworkers. You say goodbye to your family and friends and to your kids, teachers and schools and playmates and so on, and you move to San Diego. You know, what happened to commitment? And Church-wise, Pastor Clayton just drew up a two-page document making a case for the value of membership at Christ Community Church because we recognize that we live in a culture today where commitment to church is waning. You know, and you recognize, boy, if I become a, a member, what does that mean? They're going to expect me to show up every week. You know, even on beautiful days when I could be golfing or <laughs> They're going to expect me to give money. They're going to expect me to serve in some way. They're going to expect me to stay put when I disagree with the leader's decisions and I want to go someplace else where everything is done just exactly as I want it to be done. So the, the worldview of individualism promotes independence. Don't get tied down. And let me tell you where independence leads. It leads to loneliness. It leads to isolation. It leads to depression. How many of you come across an article in the news in the last several months about the epidemic of loneliness in our society today? You know, among young people, in spite of the fact that social media is an addiction, social media, and yet there's this rampant loneliness out there. Among middle-aged people, I read a study just this last week, back in the 1970s, when middle-aged people were asked, are you lonely, 14% said yes. Today, over 40%, almost half of middle-agers say, yeah, I'm lonely. And the figure is just going to get worse, unless... Unless what? Well, what's the antidote that Paul offers in Romans 12? Look again at verse 5. Read it to you a moment ago. He says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. What if we stopped looking at others through the glasses of independence and we started looking at others through the glasses of commitment? What if we committed to being there for each other? I'm committed to you. What if we were committed to fellow family members? What if we were committed to coworkers, committed to neighbors, committed to our buds at school, committed to our church? You know, what, what does this look like? Well, Paul describes it beautifully in the closing verses of today's passage where he says, I read it to you a moment ago, you know, whatever gift, whatever ability, whatever talent God has given you, don't just use it to get recognition for yourselves. Use it to serve others. Serve. Serve. 
know, we're calling 2018 around Christ Community Church the year of the volunteer. And we're encouraging you to serve. You know, there are ministries in our church that serve our church family. There are ministries in our church that serve outside our walls, the communities we live in. There are ministries that serve worldwide. You could go on a GO team and serve one of our partners, but go online to ccclife.org if you're not currently serving and look at our Simply Serve, Simply Serve website and find a place where you can roll up your sleeves and you can serve. Are you committed to volunteering or are you still protecting your independence? Stop looking at life through the glasses of individualism. In your relationship with God, choose surrender over self-rule. Surrender to Christ if you've never done a do it today. And then saturate your life with God's word so you know what God's calling you to do. He's ruling your life through his word. With respect to yourself, choose humility over pride. Think of yourself less so that you could focus on others. And with respect to others, choose commitment over independence. In just a moment, we're going to close by taking our offering and singing a song that invites God's Holy Spirit to fill our lives. Uh, But before we take the offering, I just want to say to you, in terms of generosity as a church, and this is, this is how we flesh out our commitment to each other. You guys are hitting the ball out of the park. And uh, we have just been seeing uh, great giving going on. We know that summer's kind of a, a different time. Most churches see giving dip in the summer. And one of the advantages you have is with this online app uh, where you can, gi- you can give when you're out of town so your giving is consistent. Okay, and, and you can also keep yourself from falling prey to that habit many of us have that during the summer we spend a lot on vacations and then God gets kind of what's ever left over. And so I would encourage you to use that, that online approach to giving. I would encourage you to take advantage of the opportunity you have today to contribute to Samaritan's Purse and what they're doing in Bangladesh in those refugee camps. How do you like to be one of those 700,000 people living in that camp? You could support a family. You know, family for a month at 50 bucks. What a deal. So let's give generously. I want to close in prayer before we collect our offering and sing our song. Would you pray with me? We've been talking about surrender to Christ versus self-rule. And I want to invite you to do that right now if you've never surrendered your life to Christ. It doesn't just happen by osmosis. You don't back into it. It requires a conscious, deliberate decision on your part. I don't care if you grew up going to church or this is the first time you're back in church in years. You've got a decision that has to be made. So from your heart, I encourage you to pray something like this. Oh, God, I know that I've been guilty of self-rule. And self-rule only leads to sin. And sin separates me from you, the giver of life. And the penalty is death. Can you be that honest with God right now? Can you say, I'm a sinner? My sin has disconnected me from you. And you're the giver of life, so I guess I deserve death. And the next step is to say, God, thank you so much for sending Jesus. Thank you for your great love for me. 
Thank you that his death on the cross paid the penalty for my sins. Own Jesus as your Savior and King right now. He's not just the Savior of the world. Make him your Savior by saying, Jesus, I welcome you into my life as my Savior and my King. And then tell him that you want to follow him. You want to live a life of service to him and and others. You want to learn by saturating your mind with his word, what it is he wants of you. Can you tell him that? God, I want your word to become the new compass in my life. I want to learn what it says, and I want to put it into practice. This is what it means to surrender to Christ. If you've done that from your heart right now, you're in. And not only that, God says that once you make this decision, he gives you his spirit. His spirit that we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday comes to live on the inside of you. And we're, while we're bowed before God, let me say one more word before I conclude here. And that is, if you just made that decision in your heart, at the back of every zone across our four campuses, every auditorium, at the back of every section where you're seated, there's a table, and on the table is a bunch of next steps packets. A next steps packet is for anybody who makes a decision to surrender to Christ. They're always there. It's got a Bible in it. It's got some other instructions about how to walk with Christ. I want you to pick one of those up on your way out today. So God, help us to surrender fully to you. And for, for those of us who we've reached that point where we made that decision, help us now to prove it by the way we live, saturating our lives with your word. Where we've neglected your word and by default have fallen prey to self-rule, I pray that this week we'd pick up the Bible and we'd start immersing ourselves in it once again. And I pray, God, that we would learn the value of commitment. Stop living so independently. According to our own agenda, start living for others to serve them with the gifts you've given. May those who are still looking for a place to volunteer find just the right spot where they feel like they're making a contribution to this church or the community or our worldwide partners. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.